This is The Greatest Unknowns. Some of the best movies you may never have heard of. Now play. Well, good evening, everybody. I'm your host, Alex Caperton. Welcome to The Greatest Unknowns. Now, if this is your first time on this podcast, I'm a movie lover and filmmaker right here in Columbus, Ohio. And every movie, every wonderful box office hit for every movie there are, there are some that just fall between the cracks. And that's what I'm here for, to bring movie enthusiasts together and watch some of the greatest unknowns. Now I'm here with the two very good friends tonight. First of all, I'd like to welcome returning guest, actor and also Columbus native, Gabriel Kirk. Gabe, welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me back, Alex. It's great to have you back. Thank you. We had you on for Crooked House. Uh, that was our second episode of this. And uh, have you been since then? Uh, you know, just weathering things pretty well. Not, uh, you know, I think when I was a kid, I really loved snow and I thought snow was great. Now I'm a little bit over it, especially after uh, leaving the Grove City YMCA. I but brought my, uh, well, I, let me just put it, I slid off the road and got stuck in a ditch for oh, two and a half hours and uh, sat at a 45 degree angle like this, couldn't oh. open my door, had to crawl out the side door, like, um, you know, and uh, finally the guy, AAA finally got there after freezing to death for a couple hours mm. and uh, they finally fished me out, but it, it was very painful to, to watch that guy work. It took him like a half hour to finally pull me out he just kept dragging my car along the ditch but uh yes so but other than that i've been well, you're okay it. right <laughs> yes i'm okay i survived that's good that's glad to hear and uh did the car also survive yeah. car survived it did uh messed up my tire but i got mm. that fixed so mm. all good to go oh man i'm glad that those things i one of my biggest fears and having lived in ohio my whole life i feel kind of shameful for saying this is driving in ice and that's the very reason so i'm glad to have you here i'm <laughs> also glad that i'm not uh, calling you and you're in the hospital like hey i've got the movie on my <laughs> yeah i still try to find a way to skype there and you'd be like oh it's all, it's all right gabe you know you can take this one off and like no i got it i can still do it i promise yeah i still have one working lung my arm is in a cast, but I can hold a remote. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. But I'm glad as far as we can tell, you're in one piece, so. You can only see the upper half of my body the, uh, <laughs> on the screen here. The other half, you have no idea. Oh, boy. <laughs> oh, man. And my other guest tonight is Trevor O'Neill, my very good friend, cinematographer, and grip here in Ohio. Trevor, great to have you with us. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Have you been? I've been good. Uh, I'm excited for this movie. Uh, it kind of ties into being stuck in a car for a couple of hours. Kind of seems like a fitting. Oh, yeah. That story is uh, maybe <laughs> for something very similar. Oh, man. Except uh, <laughs> hopefully, um, I know this one is not set in the winter, but um, I mean, that would have been a little bit higher stakes, too, to see. <laughs> <laughs> now Gabe you may have answered this question already with the your opening statement here but um, 
What was, would you say, the longest, and not in terms of length, but uh, just in terms of, um, like, it felt long to you, longest car ride or wait you've ever been, you've ever had? Longest car ride or wait? Yes. Um, I would probably say every single time we did the family, not vacation, but visiting, like, my grandparents in North Carolina, mm -hmm. where my mom was from, so... Uh, being the youngest of three kids, they always made me sit in the middle in a, in a 1989 Reliant K, K car. <laughs> and uh, those long rides, listening to the same uh, audio cassette over and over of the Gaither vocal band. That, that was pretty, even as a, as a, like a five and six year old, I'm like, yeah, I'm over this. I'm really over this. So every single time that we had to do that, that was probably pretty bad. And then other than that, I would say um, being super dehydrated on, um, I got sick on uh, an Alitalia flight, flew to, when I was in uh, high school, we went to Italy uh, with a missions trip and I got super sick because I didn't know you're not supposed to eat the cheese that they have on the flights because Europeans are, you know, they have the stomach for that and we Americans are used to our fake cheese. So um <laughs> Long story short, without getting too graphic, I became extremely dehydrated from a way that you can probably imagine. Mm. And um, the, um, yes, going like 36 hours of only drinking like one or two cups of water. Apparently they don't drink water over there. So, mm. uh, and then being on the flight and then the bus ride at night, that was probably one of the, the worst waiting experiences of my life. Ooh. Oh man. Oh yeah, I feel for you there. <laughs> Uh, Trevor, how about you? <laughs> I worked on a music video in Minnesota, uh, and we drove up, me and like three other of the crew members drove the whole way there, mm -hmm. then worked uh, a 17-hour long day, and then immediately drove the 14 hours back. Oh, wow. Oh, only that's... passed, only me and one of the other guys shared the driving. That was, <laughs> that was one of my great traumas in a car. <laughs> oh man i'm gonna i will be right back uh, i'm gonna pause the recording really quick uh, sorry just got a call that i do need to take so i will be with you in just one moment good sure. go right ahead lives in grove city i'm like they might not even get to me tonight i might actually have to abandon my vehicle and i'm in there eating so i'm like i don't want to lose whatever little gains that i made from working out tonight by not eating protein. So I, I crawl out the side door, you know, had and fight against gravity and then uh, get in my trunk and pull out two cans of sardines. <laughs> and uh, I eat sardines in my car, like some sort of, you know, person who's just trying to survive the cold. <laughs> and they smell, I wanted to eat it. I, I don't ever eat that stuff inside my car or in my house, because yeah. if you ever eat sardines, it's not even like tuna. It just permeates the whole whatever container that you're in it just smells of sardines after that i delivered pizza so for a while. we always yeah uh, it was bad it was sardine pizzas hmm. the sardines just the smell just like yesterday finally left my car it was in there for the, the whole week so i'm sure people that aren't used to it can probably still smell it <laughs> yeah it, yeah, so I would just eat it outside and throw it away immediately, like in my outside trash can, because <laughs> I can't even throw it away inside my house, because then the whole house smells like 
sardines and it's just awful right. it's worse than anchovies or not as bad yeah. oh man everything everything good yep we're good yeah that was a uh, the pizza guy I was telling you about finally got oh nice to the wrong house but he got here <laughs> <laughs> all right so trevor uh, tell about your uh, music video drive again <laughs> Uh, so I got a call from a guy, from a guy that I work with a lot. He was like, Hey, uh, I got a music video job. It's a little bit of a drive. Uh, would you be interested? I was like, sure. And then, uh, find out a little bit later the the job's in Minnesota, hmm. which is about a 14 hour drive. We get there and we stay in an Airbnb and then we have a, a job that should only take like eight hours but it ends up taking 17 and then we immediately drive back like straight after the job. We don't go back to the Airbnb. We just straight after 17 hours drive 14. Mm. That was, yeah, that's no better bonding experience. <laughs> I think you made some very good friends on that drive or enemies or <laughs> yeah, nothing bonds like trauma. <laughs> oh man. I remember. Yeah. That, uh, that, Someone like that called me about a PA job, but um, they said, hey, this is uh, something you'll be making, okay, decent amount of money. Um, where is it? Oh, it's in Kentucky. Is travel comp? No, 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 it'd be on your own dime. So I'd be losing money to go out and work on this reality show. <laughs> sounds like reality TV. Oh, man. Hey, glad you got a van, though. I mean, that sounds like uh, horrible, especially with what Gabe was telling us earlier, Minnesota in the snow. How was the weather when you were there? <laughs> Oh, it was super snowy. That was like either a year ago or two years ago, and it was in February. Uh, when we first landed in Minnesota, one of the other guys got out of the van and immediately like slid under the van because of the ice. I will also mention that although it was nice to have a van, it's a grip van, and its primary purpose is to be worked out of, not to be uh, a traveling like trailer or whatever. So like the seats in the back don't touch like the walls or anything. So you can't, the only thing that you could lean on in the back is the other dude that you only kind of know. <laughs> um, so it's not like you're sleeping during that 14 hours. Oh, uh, not. <laughs> and then uh, afterwards we just worked 17 hours. So we all smell awful. Mm. Like the grip van, I worked in that grip van a couple times after that. And it still, it still smells like a bunch of dudes slept in it. <laughs> Wonder if it's just from that job or uh, other jobs uh, since then. Good question. <laughs> oh man, yeah. For me, I think one of the longest drives that it only felt long. It wasn't that long. Every time I would go to work and be just under the gun, just that drive would feel. Oh, it's only ten minutes. It would feel like an hour because every stoplight, every stop sign, every little bit of traffic jam just felt like. I'm going to be late. <laughs> yeah, yep. traffic is worse than like uh, like a steady long drive. Mm -hmm. Being stuck at a, like behind an accident for like one hour feels like 14. It, yes. I mean, coming home on a 70, 70 West, I should say, from college every day uh, at rush hour. When there yeah. was an accident, I just planned to be there that night sometime. <laughs> <clears throat> excuse me 
But um, yeah, I. It's interesting because I think this movie that we're about to watch, Lock, starring Tom Hardy, it really encapsulates the feeling of a long drive. Just it. A um, little bit of backstory about this movie. Um, it takes place entirely in a car, and the one live actor that you'll see is Tom Hardy himself. Now there are some other voices of different famous actors. For example, a different Tom, Tom Holland, is also a character in it. See if you can pick out his voice before the credits. So Spider-Man and Venom are in this movie. Spider-Man and Venom and Bane. (laughs) Depending on uh, whether you're DC or Marvel. (laughs) But um, it was filmed entirely at night and over eight consecutive nights of the car constantly in motion. And I think it's one of the to me, just from seeing the trailer, one of the most interesting ways of filmmaking I have seen in almost any movie. So Trevor and Gabe, are you ready for lock? I'm sorry. Locked and loaded. Hey, <laughs> hey, there we go. Got a nice lock pun there. Puns are always welcome on this podcast. <laughs> if you guys listen to the Trans-Siberian episode, um, try and count how many train puns and see when you lose count. <laughs> All right. But for our listeners, um, if you're a veteran listener, you know the drill. If not, go ahead and hit pause on the podcast, hit play on the movie, and we'll see you in a little over an hour. Thank you for listening to The Greatest Unknowns. At this time, the podcast is in intermission, and we would like to remind you to pause the podcast until you have finished watching the film in its entirety. We will be entering the post-viewing discussion shortly. Once again, thank you for listening to The Greatest Unknowns, and enjoy the film. All right, welcome back, everybody. That was Locke, starring Tom Hardy. I'm Alex Caperton, here with Trevor O'Neill and Gabe Kirk. Guys, uh, initial thoughts coming out of the movie? I really liked it. Uh, I think... For, for like a gimmicky stunt movie with the whole being in one car, I feel like it really doesn't feel like a gimmick. Uh, I really like the, it's got a good like pace and like, it just keeps moving forward. No pun intended. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I really liked, uh, I know we'll probably dive into this um, shortly, but I really did like the symbolism uh, you know, all the different street signs mm-hmm. as he's driving by. Um, and even not just, the, yeah, like a lot of times, you you know, you see like the street signs, like even towards the end I was watching and it showed, um, you know, he's where his wife, you know, basically says it's over and you see the two different pathways yeah. that he could go. It shows the two, uh, like the signs that have like arrow pointing right and, mm-hmm. and left. And, and it's literally like crossroads. One's yeah. literally where the baby mama is. <laughs> it was very, very literally choosing between one or the other. Interesting. I, the one I caught, uh, I didn't catch the fork in the road there, but I did catch toward the end, toward when he was getting to his destination, he goes past a sign that says, slow down. And I don't know, that one I did pick up on. The stoplight I picked up on when he hit a snag. I saw that his license plate said adios, but I don't get what that's a reference to. <laughs> I, 
didn't get that one. That was probably yeah. the director's car. <laughs> there were a few others. I, I I didn't write them down like with notes, but I was watching. I was trying to remember. Uh, but there was also not just the signage, mm-hmm. but there was also uh, one of the things that he said. That I noticed one thing about his character, um, Ivan's character, was that he seemed to be very cool and level-headed. And his response was very, he was very like non, uh, non-responsive in a way. Like he was very cool and calm. And every time when people are freaking out mm-hmm. on the phone, he's got it real calm. But then there are times you see him lose it. He's got like tear in his eye. He lowers his head, starting to weigh on him. But he starts talking to um, Donald early on about the difference between the C5 and the C6. Yes. I'm not a concrete guy. But he starts going like, and he starts to get really um, heated a little bit. And he says, because the foundation, you know, if you make one mistake, then the entire building is going to come down. So that was like just an allegory for his entire, like his life right Mm -hmm. there. Everything was perfect. He makes this one mistake and he's trying, he's trying to be, trying to own up to it and be the honorable guy. Mm -hmm. But in a way, strangely enough by doing so he he torpedoes his life in a way so it was it was an interesting take right that's his uh, c5 is the everything that he did that one mistake and then it cost him his job and his family and there was a i i also noticed there was like a lot of like double speak where they'd be sit talking about one thing but they're really talking about another thing mm-hmm. like when uh, olivia coleman's character is talking about the baby has an umbilical cord, which is like a literal lifeline and a noose. And I feel like that was also kind of similar to like. Oh, that is good. Like, wow. There's just like a lot of like little things in the conversations that you're like, oh, they're talking about this. Complete, they're talking about concrete, but that's clearly not actually about concrete in this case of the movie. <laughs> we did have a couple of those um, very big symbolism and some lines that you can pick out that are almost like proverbs like the difference between once and never is a whole world <laughs> yeah uh, you mentioned how uh tom hardy was calm in this movie which is was the thing that i found most interesting was i was not expecting a calm tom hardy movie like it's like kind of relaxing he's just like it, like he normally goes like so intense with these accents but it's like such like a subtle take on the accent and he's just like it's like smooth talking you while wearing a sweater mm-hmm. Not what you yeah, expect when, out of pain. when it first started out and he's talking to these people i was i almost thought he in the especially the way he was dressed and the way in his calm demeanor i actually thought he was a therapist at first and that he was yeah. talking to his different clients i'm like wait is this his are these his clients he's talking to? <laughs> and then they finally get into, oh, no, oh, he's um, he's like basically an architect. Uh, concrete, you know, is his thing there. But uh, no, it was, uh, it was pre- I, I was actually expecting there to be some sort of twist. I really was expecting a, a bizarre <laughs> twist that never happened. So I was almost, I don't know if I was relieved that, you know, it wasn't, there it wasn't a big twist at the end. Um, but uh, at any rate, what did you guys think of his like, uh, like the almost not schizophrenic, but I mean his his having this conversation with his his father, his dead father, who's mm-hmm. not there in the car. I loved that. I, I think like 
most of the movie he's like calm tom hardy but that's like the most tom hardy part of the movie is when he's just like kind of going crazy talking to himself in the mirror it like kind of seems out of out of place in the movie if it weren't tom hardy because it's just like the movie's like almost realistic for most of the movie but then there's these like stagey like over the top moments where he's just like freaking out and having like a hamlet moment into the mirror yeah i I loved it i don't think anybody other than tom hardy could have pulled that off in that way but like because of tom hardy you would have felt disappointed if that didn't happen (laughs) yeah i kind of don't agree with that like i'm trying to think i'm trying to picture any other actor in that role and i think the moment they would have done the uh, monologue had it not been tom hardy (laughs) in his tom hardy voice i feel like that would have that would have taken me out of the movie and been like, okay, well, this is no longer a story. This is just a stage play in a car. <laughs> but yeah, I thought he was going to go off the road when I first watched it. When I heard they said, hey, I'm doing 90. I'm like, okay, he's not talking about 90 miles an hour. This is England. This is 90 kilometers an hour. So <laughs> this is Audubon level fast. And I thought it was going to end with him just going off the road. You know, I, I thought the same thing. I actually thought that was going, when, right at the end, when things are going super south, his wife, I mean, he's already lost his job, but he weathered that pretty well. Then his wife leaves him, and he's, uh, he's starting to go downhill. And then his son calls him on the phone um, and, and speaks to him. Less. I actually thought that he was going to go off the road. He was going to die or something like that. But, but I was actually pleasantly surprised that he stops and he hears this woman, you know, speak to him and he hears his baby, uh, you know, mm-hmm. uh, cry. And it was like, it was like a hopeful thing. It's like an end in a new beginning. Yeah. That starts. So it was, it ended on a, a small little bit of, of hope. Yeah. I like that. It, it, it seemed like it was going tragedy route where he was losing everything. And it was all because of like his character flaw, but then it like, like it does kind of just like cut open this new like this is kind of like his route to like not being a tragedy like his little bit of a again the word lifeline they are coming down to save him from any rash horrible thing he's about to do to himself Hmm. and i also think it was kind of interesting because another movie in fact the first movie we ever watched on this podcast the wind there is a, one of the things that divides the husband and wife in that is their baby is stillborn. And there's a whole line in there where the wife is asking, keeps saying, why isn't the baby crying? And it's interesting because in this, they say, hey, we have a complication with the umbilical cord, that lifeline that you mentioned, Trevor. Yeah. And then you hear the baby crying and you know, right then things are going to not be okay necessarily, but um, he's going to be able to start again there. And I thought that's an interesting, even though I know those movies were made years apart, um, interesting callback. If any listeners listen to the first podcast on here, first episode, I should say. You just keep picking movies about uh, childbirths. (laughs) That's That's actually... I hadn't thought about that. I actually did listen to your first podcast, mm-hmm. and then uh, the second one that I was on. The second one we did was was uh, all about that that uh, warlock trying to have his baby. 
You're right. Yeah. <laughs> is is there some sort of underlining current going going like maybe even uh, sub uh, subconscious subconsciously here, Alex? Is, well, as the third as... one breaks that pattern because it's about people uh, smuggling drugs on a train in Russia. No babies involved. So, well, you know what? That's a lie. One of the themes of Trans Siberian was. He wanted to have a kid, but his wife didn't. Uh... <laughs> yeah. And then Bruce all... there, the guy, he was raised by a family that weren't his parents. Uh... Oh, dear. <laughs> it's all Freudian right here. It's all Freudian. <laughs> it better not be. <laughs> uh, we just made it weird for you. <laughs> No, now I'm trying to go back and think about Friends and Romans and the Infinity Chamber, which uh, the only time that there's parents and children in that is um, Friends and Romans. The guy's daughter wants to do theater, but she's not a baby. She's in high school, so. <laughs> also, there's a mob boss in that one, so I think that kind of breaks the pattern in that way. Just keep making the same podcast over and over again. <laughs> yeah. I uh, read a couple of quick, like, instant, uh, interesting trivia off uh, mm -hmm. IMDb. Uh, Tom Hardy had a cold in real life, and so they wrote that into the script. Neat. And then I also thought it was interesting that every time that the car says, like, incoming call or whatever, you have a call waiting, uh, they actually added that in post because the car actually kept saying low fuel warning because it's on the process trailer and it doesn't have gas. So it just kept like, like giving an alarm saying that it was like low on fuel during the takes. Wow. And it kept throwing Tom Hardy off. So when he's, when he hears what, well, what we hear as you have a call waiting, it's actually the car giving him a low fuel warning and they just covered it up. And that's why he's frustrated. It's because he's like trying to focus on the scene and it just keeps going low fuel warning. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, I thought that was a little interesting. We got a little bit of method acting right there. I mean, <laughs> that's how it, I feel when I see my check engine go light go on. Which, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's one of those unexpected sounds. I, I've heard of now that one sounds like it's a happy accident yeah. for that film. Mm -hmm. But I, I've heard of other directors doing things that just completely tick off their. They're actors like uh, I saw a thing just because I I love one of my favorite Christmas movies, Die Hard. Mm -hmm. I know probably have guns pointed at me now from somewhere for saying that. No, uh, but um, with uh, Alan Richter, is they want when they're dropping him off of the building, mm -hmm. they're trying to get a reaction. I mean, he he's all ready, you know, to give his best, you know, so shocked, surprised look. They said, okay, we're gonna drop you on three, and they go one. And then they just drop him <laughs> without him. Uh, he's on wires and stuff, you know, and, uh, you know, it's all, it's all fake, but like, he gets that look. So that like release, like he literally was shocked to be dropped on number one. And he was very upset about that. So that's interesting that uh, at least with this one, they just kind of use the fact that he really is getting um, ticked off with the fact that his car is making noise while he's trying to uh, focus on what he's got to do. <laughs> It played into it very well. I mean, uh, again, happy accident uh, or frustrating accident if you were there on set at the time. 
Classic abusing actors. There we go. Or abusing <laughs> props in the case of the car, not putting gas in it. <laughs> well, I have a question for you guys. I know that it's not necessarily about uh, the movie Locke, but have you, um, in any of your experiences uh, with, um, with acting or directing or editing, where you've uh, had experienced a little bit of um, uh, abuse, whether intended or unintended? Um, there have been times, yes. Um, there was one time where I was told by someone that there was a sequence that was already edited and I didn't need to worry about it. Well, I plug it in and then the producer comes up and says, hey, I wanted that edited a different way. And then I said, well, he told me it was edited um, already. And then the guy, he backpedals a little bit and he says, oh, uh, I meant uh, that you could use that as a template for when you re-edit it. And I, huh? <laughs> that, that was pretty confusing there. Mm -hmm. I, I was confused at the time. I mean, it got done, but it was uh, one of those, well, if it's already edited, then uh, why do the same job twice? <laughs> yeah, it's like, Oh, it's not actually edited. It's like, well, it's edited, but I want you to use it as a template. It's like, well, I'm sorry. But you should just tell like my psychic powers were just a little, little weak that day. I didn't pick up on that, you know. <laughs> but uh, no, I was thinking of um, like uh, this movie that they, well, the series that they're making this uh, I-71 films with. Um, Oh, St. Gabriel, yes. St. Gabriel, yes. Mm -hmm. Not named after me. <laughs> but you're in it, though. No, I'm in it. It was already named before I was even cast in a smaller role. Mm -hmm. But I'm, I'm playing a, a small-time thug. I don't know why, but I get a lot of villain roles, which I really <laughs> like because I don't really, I don't look it, according to my, um, my agent. Uh, she's like, yeah, you don't you don't have the look for it, but anybody can be a villain. It's just all about your, your attitude. So I'm like, okay, mm -hmm. but I get this part. I'm, I'm just a low level thug and I'm, I'm all for physical acting. You know, I'm not yeah. a stuntman. I don't do stunts, but I'm, I'm physical acting, you know, getting rough and stuff. And, uh, and, uh, Bram Falk has to be the hero yes. and throw me around. And he was being really gentle with, you know, like the move and stuff where he's supposed to act like he hits me and like pins me up against the wall. And they have a uh, corrections officer, a female corrections officer, who's mm -hmm. like their, their stage person. She's like, you're doing it all wrong. So she's like, this is how you do it. So she, I'm like, I'm, I'm bracing for it because I know she's, she's going to show them how to do it. But like they like legit, <laughs> they, um, they, were, they were very physical people. Like she grabs me, like throws me up against the wall. And I'm like, my face is like all squished up. I'm like, ah, mm. I'm like, feel that? I'm like. Yeah, I think that's how it goes, like that. And then, uh, the other dudes um, who are really big, strong weightlifters are like, yeah, you got to grab them like this. And like, like, is everybody going to get a turn here? You know, pushing me up against the wall. But like, um, so then like Bram had to do it and they just kept doing it over and over. And I'm just dealing with it. But at the end, I'm like, man, yeah, my, uh, my head is uh, starting to throb right now so that was mm. i had to take some pain medication for it ouch but you gotta suffer for the art man you gotta that is suffer true. For it. i mean this didn't happen to me directly but there was a, a set that i was on that i was running camera for where i think it was a 48 hour film project back at capitol 
but uh, there were supposed to be these two characters that were like pushing each other around. And then one of them, she grabs the other one and throws her against the kitchen sink. And we've choreographed this. And <laughs> suddenly one of them trips and you see her actually hit her head on the corner of the kitchen sink. In oh. the background, you just hear me. Ah! <laughs> oh man. But yeah, and you know, that ended up being the take that we kept in there, but <laughs> everyone was fine to my knowledge, but. Uh... Those those are the best ones. Mm-hmm. I mean, well, even in your uh, your film a couple years ago, geez, almost going on three years now, uh, Venting. Yes. Hour film. I felt bad because our our dear friend, shoot, I'm blanking on her name right now. Kira. I like, Kira, Kira. Yeah, I just liked your post. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I, I was, uh, I didn't wait for, you know, action, uh, when I pushed her face <laughs> into <laughs> to the wall, uh, I was just supposed to like come in, you know, as I'm, uh, as I'm just walking in there, I'm the boss character and I'm supposed to like push her out of the way and, uh, you're, I'm waiting for action. And I, I don't know why, but I just like, I jumped the gun. I just jumped it. And uh, she wasn't ready for it. Yeah, really in character. <laughs> and like, I come in and I just like push her into the counter, and I hear her go, and she goes, "Oh!" <laughs> and then afterwards, she's like, "You're supposed to wait for them to, to say action." I'm like, "I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I, I know, I know." Um. So yes, I'm guilty too. I guess. Oh yeah. No, I remember Kyle on that going. <gasps> It was just hearing her like, uh, just a little faint, like, ow, like that. <laughs> and that's the reason why, by the way, that's, that's the reason why Jake wanted that uh, mm-hmm. to be, it. that's the reason why he had her, her dress as an old lady and me grab her by the yes. face and push her for ZZ3. Um, <laughs> but that was it's because I told him about that. And he's like, yeah, you pushed her around a lot. <laughs> <laughs> like Almost. Uh, oh, man. I'm sorry, I got us totally off subject. Oh, you're good. You're good. No, that's a that makes sense. Uh, now, have you ever, as an actor, have you ever had something going on like that uh, fuel level low kind of thing, that um, environmental stuff that really took you out of the character for a second, and then suddenly, instead of being generic thug, you were Gabe again? Um, let me think here. I, you know, I've, I've had. I can't like think of like, you know, things just going off like noises and stuff. I mean, every once in a while, I think there's been like, you know, somebody left their cell phone on or something like that. It wasn't that big of a deal. Um, I can just think of maybe as far as like distractions, I'm my worst enemy on, on my distractions. Uh, laughing is uh, sometimes like if something was just like legit funny or someone gives me a facial feature that I was not expecting to see when I'm supposed to be like, like I said, I, I do a lot of villain roles or, or I'm, a, right. I'm a mean guy. And uh, I was thinking of uh, when he, when he just did the CZ2 right before he, you know, mm-hmm. Dr. Mulder Chronicles, before he decided to take it into a feature length film, um, Jim Gloyd is uh, playing opposite me. Oh, you were there. Yeah, yeah I, I was. I push your character out. I push hey, you a push lot a lot of people. <laughs> I, I do. I, I push people. 
I get pushed into things. It's just, it's all a bunch, it's still physical acting, but I'm sitting there and I'm supposed to get in, you know, tough in an over, over the top way with uh, Jim Gloyd and he's supposed to be super serious. And then he, uh, then all of a sudden, like, uh, I'll get close so you can see my eyes here. Mm-hmm. I'm like, you don't, t-, you know, I'm getting tough with him. And all of a sudden he just goes <laughs> like this, you know, <laughs> with big white eyes. Like, great facial expressions. I- and I just like, and he's like doing this, like, you know, uh, face. <laughs> and I'm like, I can't, <laughs> I can't keep, you know, I'm just going to break down. And then we couldn't even finish the following scene uh, with, you know, uh, because uh, I just kept laughing at the ridiculous line that I had to do. Right. You know, I said, I'm going to bust a cap and uh, shoot the little girl. It says, I'm going to bust a cap in her ass. <laughs> and I'm like, I couldn't, it was so bad, man. I could not finish that line no matter how many times, like 20 times. And I'm wasting film. They have to switch out batteries in that camera. I remember that. And I'm like, I'm sorry. I know I can, I can do better, but that that's basically the worst for me is me just laughing and not being professional. <laughs> usually am the distraction. That's been my experience. I'm usually the one that accidentally leaves their phone on or walks through eye lines or messes up somebody else's work. Never been on the other side of that. <laughs> now I feel like you as a camera op, Trevor, I feel like, um, do you have any stories like that where something has just taken you out of a, even behind the scenes, either a bird flew through or the worst thing though is when when uh, something funny does happen or like something in the scene is really funny and you're like trying to stay off camera and like not laugh directly into the camera or like throw off the actors like uh i don't know like working like reality tv or something where it's like stuff's kind of like improvisational and you don't know what's coming and then something like really goofy happens and then all of a sudden you're like i guess i'm gonna be trying not to laugh and ruin this whole take because the recording audio it's a very high stress job we do mm-hmm. I, <laughs> I, I know from being behind the scenes for even short films um, there are times when an actor will say something hilarious and it just takes me out of oh I've got to be quiet this is happening in real time <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're like this is like so out of the blue and it's like going to be perfect on camera as long as I don't laugh out loud and just ruin the take because we're never going to get this organically again. So I have to be as quiet as possible. But. Uh, now, speaking of cinematography, um, what did you guys think of uh, the way that it was filmed there, the shots both inside and outside of the car? I think my biggest takeaway from it was like, it, it's kind of an impossible task to keep things like, interesting and new and unique the whole time when it's just the same setting where it's a freeway and just a car mm-hmm. and i feel like it would have been very easy for a director and cinematographer to be like oh it'll be faster if we just shoot like the same seven shots for all the scenes mm. I think they did a good job of like trying to mix up as much as they can and i think it kind of goes unnoticed which is a good thing but there's definitely changes between scenes there's like so many shots you can see how they like turned it into like an eight day shoot Mm -hmm. and like there's like a lot of it it's the same kind of light setup where there's clearly something that's like on his face that's lighting his face up the whole time other than just like the road lamps 
because there's like a consistent warm tone coming from like the window side, like is near a window, which doesn't exist in real life. There's no just steady light as you're going down the freeway. Right. Uh, so there's like that side of it. And then there's also just like, they have a lot of moving lights that come by. And I, uh, I think that's one of the lighting setups. And then there was another one where it's like constantly changing the color of the light on his face. Mm-hmm. I, I saw they would use that one uh, only a couple times. I, I can't remember which scenes that they used it for. They also kept doing this thing where they would, I, I can't figure out what they did, but like the, the camera was on something that felt the vibrations of the roads more because most of the movie it's steady, but they put it on something and it's like shaking with the road and like going out of focus. I thought that was interesting. And then they also like came players. Mm-hmm. Most of the movie, it's that like consistent like bokeh look with like all the like the circles like throughout the frame of like the light. But there was a couple times in the movie where they went with like the anamorphic like blue like cuts of light over the lens. I probably just lost all your audience. Like, <laughs> like, I, I just started talking about all the technical side of lighting, and they're like, "Oh, we just want to talk about movies." But <laughs> that's what I, I did notice a lot of that stuff. I tell you what, if Jared Acker is listening right now, then he's probably <laughs> clapping his hands. <laughs> this went out to all of our cinematographers out here. <laughs> no, but I am glad you brought that up. I, uh, Looking at the poster now, the warm temp on his face, um, I think it is interesting. Really, yeah, it adds a little, yeah, it adds a little bit of mysticism to the movie a little bit. And like you have like it's partially a practical solution because mm-hmm. like you don't want your actor to be like dark for the whole movie that's the problem with all car scenes but you can tell that it's not a light from inside the car because it's got the cut from the roof right because like at first i was thinking oh maybe they're trying to like fake like the dashboard light but like like the, like the the cut of the light is clearly with the roof of the car mm-hmm. so it's like clearly like out somewhere outside that window so it's probably just attached to the process trailer the car's on. Yeah, I'd imagine that's... But it's it's not noticeable. I, I, I assume you guys didn't really notice that. It's just like one of those things where you're like, oh, I guess that technically shouldn't exist. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, when you mentioned it, um, I started thinking about it. I'm like, you know, I've never seen a car scene like that, probably because it was only a 10-minute car scene rather than uh, an 80-minute car scene. Yeah, but yeah, I I gotta say, I think the shots that they chose and the order that they put them in, it almost felt like, and I don't know if you guys felt this way, it almost felt like you were in the passenger seat there with them for a little bit. Yeah, and they kept switching around the perspective too. There was a lot of stuff with reflections, which I thought was interesting. Mm-hmm. They would go through the rear view mirror, they would go like there were some scenes where we weren't even looking directly at him. It was just his reflection on the window. I like that. I don't know. They kept it interesting, I thought. A couple of little things. And I think if you ask anyone who has not seen this movie and they watch it uh, who is not involved in film, they probably think, oh, they made it in a car? That's got to be the easiest thing in the world. And <laughs> wait, back up. <laughs> I mean, it could have been the easiest thing if you were lazy about it, but that I think that's the thing about like art in the first place is if you put a lot of work into something that is easy, like you can get more out of it. Right. 
it could have been the easiest production although no matter what it was going to be hard for tom hardy oh of course <laughs> i mean garage with green screen walls or a highway yeah. Yeah, it's... well i was thinking uh alex didn't you you did a uh i don't know it was maybe four or five years ago you, you did a uh three weeks of horror uh film in a, in a car um was that, was that one yours or was that one someone else's that it was with the the ghost police officer that pulls over that, that was car. mine yeah okay yeah I remember that one. you All so right. you filmed that at night uh hmm. with a car now how how was your experience with that um so that one was a short so it was um the way that we had done it was my aunts live on a dead-end street and that's where we filmed most of it but um the part where she's driving um there are one or two parts where she is driving and dan Steeman, my cinematographer, he's sitting in the passenger seat and he's trying to move the camera along with the, along with the road bumps. But uh, anyway, we just uh, had her drive to the end of the street and back. And then for every shot with the, um, let's see, with the cop, uh, we just had it parked in my aunt's driveway and we had all the lights shut off and <laughs> just uh, kind of tried to film around it, did not film the officer's face because he's a ghost. And <laughs> yeah, a lot of that was we had to wait for it to get dark, but since it was fall, that was not a big problem. <laughs> mm -hmm. but, it is always yeah. challenging trying to film at night, especially on a budget, because uh, we never have process trailers like they have. This whole <laughs> movie, it's like, it's just like, he's not actually moving the car, except for I think some of the shots where it's pointing out through the front windshield that i would assume they were actually in the car but I, for the most majority of the movie it's sitting on a trailer and they're right. just filming him but like when when we have to do this on a budget lighting wise we're like where's where's net like where are the street lamps right we're trying to figure out which street lamps are like too far apart or too close together and you're like trying to figure all those things out and then like how does an actor like stay in performance while also trying not to crash the car too. Like you're trying to like say these lines and remember lines while also being like a good driver. Like that's a whole nother challenge. Mm -hmm. Circa mm -hmm. winter film 2017. <laughs> Is that, which one was 2017? Was that when we got pulled over by the cops? On that was when you guys got pulled over by the cops. <laughs> this will probably be edited out of the podcast, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. But yeah, I've seen the way that uh, things have been done on a budget. Like that winter film we mentioned, uh, they built a rig on the driver's side door. Yeah. And I, it was amazing to see it built, but then again, uh, I would have been afraid to open that door. <laughs> and that's, that's the stuff that made this movie eight days of shooting. I also read that Tom Hardy was actually only on set for six days. Right. He's the only actor. That means the other two days are like car shots. Mm -hmm. So it's like that, I feel like that's kind of interesting. Just in like, like, whenever he's in it, that was just six days of shooting. It sounds like they mostly just played it as like a oneer when they shot with Tom Hardy, and they would just try and shoot through a whole, shoot through the whole movie each time with him. Right. Or had multiple cameras rolling at once. Um... Yeah. And I'm sure they had rigs everywhere on that car. 
and I'm sure they had to like retake it all the time. And I'm I'm curious if they did the whole drive, the whole hour and a half drive every night, or if they just did por- portions of it. I, I would hope that they would do portions of it, but uh, then again, I don't know every filmmaker, no. but I do know some are a little bit purist like that. Uh, those are the to... interesting challenges that go into the into a movie like this because you just see a guy in a car, and then there's like so <laughs> many logistical errors, like still that could come up and like challenges. Right. There was one part, and I don't know if you guys picked up on this. One part where I think I did one of those audience in the theater saying, don't go in there moments. (laughs) And that was when he opens up his folder and he's reading it to the guy while he's driving. I'm like, you can take a picture of it and send it to him. If you're already going to be reading it and taking your eyes off the road, just take pictures. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I, there was a couple of times now I, I do this often when I'm watching a movie and, and someone's driving and they're like excessively looking like right. long time periods of like talking to somebody like this where they're not having their eyes on the road. I'm like, keep your eyes on the road. You're going to wreck. <laughs> and he did that a couple of times. Like he sticks his head down on the wheel like this while they're driving. And, uh, but, uh, <laughs> but the other thing that I noticed, I, I didn't really pay too much attention to it, but when he's scrolling through like names, on his uh, on his dashboard, there are people to call his one boss, or uh, forget the guy's name, but it was listed as uh, bastard was his name on yeah. the on the dashboard. Yeah. yeah, which is again like a repeated thing in the movie because mm-hmm. he doesn't want the son that's being born to be a bastard, and then he also thinks of himself as a bastard because his dad. So it's kind of interesting that they tied all three of those together. Also, mm-hmm. I made. Probably nobody finds this interesting, but uh, one of the names in the phone when he was scrolling down was Derek Jarman, which is like a, I, he, I think he's a British artist, but he was like a painter and he also made some movies, mm-hmm. just a like random Easter egg. That is neat to find those. I love um, finding like one of those Pixar moments almost where you're looking for the hidden clues, the hidden A113. and <laughs> I, I'm curious if there were any other names hidden in there. Derek I think I'm going to have to go back and watch it and pay attention to the phone scene. But I've got the trivia pulled up right here. Uh, and there's one thing we mentioned on here a little bit earlier. Uh, said Tom Hardy was chosen because he was the only, only actor that they thought that um, would sustain the audience's interest. And um, <laughs> I think we proved their point there by talking about it earlier. <laughs> I, I, I'm sure somebody else could do something equally interesting with it, but he's definitely the first choice if you write a movie like this. Right. Oh, also to call back to um, like the license plate on there where you said adios, um, yeah. they said that's, a theme in it is the theme of goodbye, just goodbye family, goodbye job, goodbye life. I guess that makes sense. Mm. Let's see. I also think the, uh, the the actors through the phone were kind of underrated in this. I mean, you can, it's only voice acting, but mm-hmm. Olivia Coleman in particular as the, uh, the girl that's having his child. Yeah. The baby mama. And it, she's like 
so crazy and like I don't know it kind of reminded me of her role in the favorite because she's just like this person that's like kind of like emotionally fragile right yeah I, I remember her in that movie she was great in it but um yeah now I see what you mean I I had forgotten her name until just now that she was in the favorite but uh I do see what you mean there no yeah I think you're right about that voice acting I was thinking about that like how these scenes would have been done how they were rehearsing uh, because they're they obviously have to play off of one another and uh and hear each other it was he's apart from that it's like they you're you're right their their personalities were so different and he he tried to handle every single person in a unique way that i thought but it was it was interesting though how he made this decision that he's going to be there and he's going to be so honest he could have lied right. i thought that was something he could have lied yeah. to everyone like even his boss he gives this very personal like um, amazingly blunt um i oh i almost want to say a very british thing because you know they have the old saying stiff upper lip yeah. uh for for british people i mean i've even seen these uh these world war ii documentaries and you you notice the difference between the um the british war veterans and the american ones the British war veterans will uh, very almost emotionally, emotionlessly tell you horrific things. And they'll just tell you nonchalant almost of, you know, people dying all around them and mm -hmm. stuff like they that. They should not grow old. The World War One documentary, the detail they go into. Well, I mean, just even the lip reading that they did for, I mean, blew my mind just to hear what those guys were saying, you know, uh, in that film. Uh, but yeah, but anyways, like, yeah, they, um, he just like tells us like, yeah, um, you know, I'm, I'm having a child tonight, you know, and I'm going to see him. He's like, your wife isn't pregnant. You know, it's like, yeah, yeah it's, it's uh, not my wife. And then he just tells this embarrassing story. And that's the reason why he can't be there for the opening. If mm -hmm. he had just claimed, you know, um, that yeah, is like, oh, I've come down with, you know, something terrible. I just can't. He has saved his job. He saved his marriage, mm -hmm. but he he believed that honesty was the best policy, and that he he was somehow it was almost like he was trying to convince himself, and almost like show that he's a better man than his father who had yeah. died who knows how many years before then. Right, like he was like he kept having this conversation where he was berating his dead father about how he even said at one point he said you showing up all those years later and apologizing was worse than if you just stayed gone the entire time. And he's like, this is how you handle things. It's like, he was educating his father. He's like, this is how a man handles things. You know, he makes a mistake and he owns it. And he, you know, he has to fix it. He has to, you know, respond in this way. Mm -hmm. And then he, he comes to find that his, his plan is what he thought. He honestly thought that everything was going to be, fine his wife was going to you know was going to forgive him uh, his boss was going to forgive him things were going to be okay and then it slowly starts to unravel and uh his honesty was not rewarded so i thought that that was it's like you know the best laid plans of mice and men often go mm -hmm. awry i i felt like uh responsibility was like the foundational theme of like the whole mm. script it seemed like like from a writing standpoint, it seemed like they 
they almost created characters as different ideas of responsibility, different different complications for him and responsibility. Like there's the the drunk guy that's not doing his job well. There's like uh, this this other guy who's uh, decided that his Indian his dinner at the Indian restaurant is more important of a responsibility than his job or whatever. Mm-hmm. There's his wife and his baby mama and there's like places where he's failed with responsibility and places where he succeeded but it seems like from like a writing standpoint that was like the backbone of the whole thing yeah i think um responsibility if you want to go into those themes a little bit um if you think about it there's okay what he's trying to do is take responsibility for the thing that he's done and then also make sure that other people are taking responsibility like uh the guy at the Indian restaurant. He wants to make sure that that guy does his job. He wants to make sure that um, the guy that he's talking to, the um, Donald character, um, that he's doing his job while sober. And basically when that guy screws up, he tells him, look, you're going to have to go running toward this guy. He says, well, I don't want to run. He says, well, that's too bad. (laughs) Like there's another one of those, you made your bed and sleep in it. Yeah. kind of things where that guy screws up and he says okay now you got to pay the consequences you got to take the responsibility there so i don't know interesting domino effect there of um yeah no that, that was a really good point that the, that was the main theme of the of the movie was responsibility and in one's role in that responsibility like even his continuing to oversee the building project after he's been definitively fired. I mean, they're like, no, you're, you're not going to have any more part of this, Ivan, you are fired. Chicago (laughs) says you're fired. And he's like, it's okay. I've already got taken care of. He says, I I owe it to the building. Like I, I owe that building. I, I have to do this. And he continues to guide, you know, what's going on to keep it from falling apart, even though he's not really going to get any, any real reward other than seeing his accomplishment, I guess, of it being built, he invested so much into it. But I, I have to admit, as I was watching that and him talking about his responsibility to the building, it uh, weirdly enough just reminded me of my, my last year as a teacher at, um, at our old school there. And uh, they, they wanted me to translate the... Um, well, you know, for anybody listening, I, I used to be, um, I work as a Spanish interpreter and translator uh, for a company, and I was a high school Spanish teacher, and uh, I translated the, the school handbook into Spanish, and I was, I basically felt responsible, because it was right at the end, mm-hmm. and I was like, responsible, I'm not getting paid anymore, I've quit my job to go get a better paying job somewhere else. And I, but I felt responsible to the handbook. <laughs> I had, I'm telling you, I was responsible to the handbook. And I told Mr. Errol, my, um, my boss at the time, even though I was leaving and I was leaving under good terms, I'm like, don't worry, I'm going to finish that handbook. You know, I, I owe it to the handbook <laughs> to finish it. Um, but, and they're like, yeah, we appreciate that. But then when I got locked out of my, um, my school account, I told them like, hey, if you want me to finish, I have to finish the, the, the school handbook. I need to get my password back. Otherwise I can't finish it. And they're like, yeah, we'll get on that. 
And then they just never got back with me. <laughs> and I'm like, you know what? And I'm like, I'm, and it's a, it was a long project. I worked on that for a really long time. <laughs> I did. Uh, like I even involved like my school kids in the, in the work and stuff. My, <laughs> my Spanish threes. Yeah. And I'm like, you know what? Forget it. That's fine. You know, <laughs> not being paid for it. Sure. I, I translated like 40 some pages and I only had like seven left to go, but you know what? That's okay. That's fine. I don't need to finish that handbook. <laughs> it's rough when you pour a bunch of effort into something like that. Oh my God. It was one of the, it was one of the, um, the catalysts for me quitting too. <laughs> I mean, I, it's okay. We can edit this out. I'm sure. But it was like, oh, yeah, they kept like, the stuff on like, <laughs> anyways, that was it. Yeah. Oh man. But, um, it's interesting. I think that, uh, that mentality that you were talking about, just the, you know what, forget it mentality of the, um, handbook. I think we see him come, we see Locke come to that in the movie where he says the, um, you know, I've learned two words tonight, two very yeah. valuable words. Fuck Chicago. <laughs> yep. Yes. Two words I learned tonight. Fuck Chicago. <laughs> and I feel like that's been said a lot in America, especially in baseball season, but... Uh... <laughs> Those upstarts <laughs> finally win a World Series first time in 100 years, and all of a sudden they think they're better than everybody else. Right? First time in a hundred years, and it had to be. I would be happy for him. Cleveland is my team. Dang it! I. Uh, I'm more of a hockey person. Luckily, Chicago's hockey team sucks. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, but yeah. yeah, it's interesting to see him come to that realization. Like, you know what? I've been fired. It doesn't matter. I've done all I can do. It's all on y'all. <laughs> You get to the point where you just, you know, you start to reprioritize things in your life. Mm -hmm. And at the moment, being fired, just he seemed to weather it pretty well right. in, in different regards. But once he'd lost his family and it sounded like it was pretty definitive there. And then with everybody and it seemed like everybody else was wasn't trying. Mm -hmm. It's like he was the one who was trying to make everything work trying to get Donald to, um, you know, do his, do his part, you know, sure. He may be drunk on cider, but you know, you got to go over there and tell um, Stefanik or Stefan, uh, the Polish guy to get over there and fix the rebar. And oh. like, he's not doing it. The, his other boss is, isn't pulling his weight. His uh, wife is turning on him. His uh, woman that he, and he was very definitive with his, um, his, the lady that he was with saying, you know, Hey, uh, I don't love you. I don't right. hate you. I, I nothing you. I mean, this is just how it you. is. I don't even really know you, um, that she's and she's freaking out. It's like, he's, he's the, the butter here, or the, he's the glue that keeps everybody together. Mm -hmm. And it almost felt like no one else is trying. So it's like, why, why do I try myself when no right. one else seems to be putting forth an effort? I'm sure we've all been there at some point. Yeah. I mean, especially in film and everything. I've, I've seen there are points where there was a set I was on in college. It was a student film, but uh, so many people, there was alcohol involved. There's another theme that uh, 
first rule of filmmaking no alcohol right <laughs> except these were students and um not really smart the film ended up being pretty good but at the end of it um nobody was happy <laughs> oh but yeah alcohol was another i feel like it was another theme to this the um he talked about how his father was an alcoholic. Donald was drinking the cider. And then there was a line where he was telling Donald, you can't call this person after five because he drinks. Mm. And I don't know, did anyone pick up on any other alcohol references in there or? Uh... Mainly, mainly just that one, the one drunk uh, coworker, I think it was Donald. Mm-hmm. That was, that was the main thing. I, I'm I'm curious uh, if that was like an intentional thing to like line up like alcohol throughout all those things. I do think that uh, responsibility and then all of like alcohol was kind of a reason a lot of people like struggled with responsibility in the movie. But well, didn't he say? Um... Because I, I was trying to remember from the beginning when he when he just up and admits out of like towards the beginning out of nowhere that how he met this woman and he and he was even saying at the time yeah. he's like well she's no oil painting which I thought was a very <laughs> bizarre you know it was a it was kind of a, a strange way of describing her as not a very attractive you know woman yeah. and she was even in her forties and um, I thought it was strange but you know. Uh, did he mention, because I'm, I'm trying to remember, it was right towards the beginning. Was, was he drunk when, he, when he had sex with her? He mentioned oh. that there was alcohol involved. He didn't say specifically who drank, but he okay. said he says something like there was a bottle of alcohol that was opened. And then, but he, he keeps not wanting to say the exact words of what happened and just like hinting at alcohol, then uh, pregnancy. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, it was involved for him that there too. And he even mentioned also then, I'm just remembering, uh, he said the other guys there were celebrating. So that may, that may mean drinking, but. Uh... Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah. that's, that's the problem. You know, you, you make a mistake. It's like, you know, I mm -hmm. mean, it, you, you make that one mistake. Like he said, I, I made one mistake in 15 years. Mm -hmm. And then his wife uh, convinced afterwards after she kept hanging up on him and, you know, finally talking to him, she's like, I talked to my sister and my half sister. Mm -hmm. And then it's like, you say, you know, you made one mistake. Well, that's, that's, if you've made one, you've probably made, it's probably isn't the first time that mm -hmm. you've cheated on me is basically what she said. Yeah. It sounds like he, he was being honest though. He, he tried to maintain his honesty. Right. I mean, got him in trouble was yeah. his honesty. And, um, he said, you know, I, I really had just did make one mistake, but he, he was so I was taken aback by how blase he what when he explained it mm -hmm. at first, you know, and he's like, and that's and it has to be tonight because the baby's coming two months early. That's why I'm telling you this over the phone. Right. And like, you of the movie, yeah. you don't want to believe that this is the only affair he's had. Like when you first hear him say that, you're like, you're full of shit. Like, right. <laughs> if, you've, if you've done it once, you've probably done it another time. But by the end of the movie, you're like maybe that was the only time mm -hmm. like yeah one is more than never or whatever or one's right. a big difference the difference from between never and one time yeah. is everything yeah <laughs> and it is interesting i know none of us are married yet but um 
I think it is interesting. You see a lot of married couples who say, like, the hill that I will die on is if the other person cheats on me. Like, and that ends up being just the unforgivable, unspeakable sin almost is the idea of cheating. Yeah, it, it mm -hmm. uh, clearly uh, did not work out for him, even though it was one time. Oh, yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, didn't work out for a cousin of mine either, whose name I will not mention because this person may be listening to the podcast. And <laughs> Probably cut that part. <laughs> yeah, I'm definitely going to cut that part. <laughs> It, it is a very sad, you know, human thing that it, it's so, it's so, it, it, just very sad that it's mm -hmm. universally common. I mean, for me, like, too, you're right. Um, I mean, I'm not married yet either. Want to mm -hmm. make that a thing that happens eventually. Uh, but I've seen, you know, I've, I, I've had friends, you know, from back when, you know, who got married. I've seen them at the, when they started dating, married, divorced. And it was almost always universally, this was the reason why. Um, and it's yet, it's so common. And, and I've even seen some people who were forgiving. Mm -hmm. And that it would do anything to save the relationship. And one person, like, like you said, I won't mention any names, but the situation was um, these, these people um, were shopping for their engagement rings. And uh, they had been together for about five years. And uh, the guy up and, and cheats on his girlfriend, soon to be fiance. I mean, they had basically just had an understanding, you know, we're getting married. And um, with, with, her, with her friend. And <laughs> she forgives him. And she says, you know what? I forgive you. Hmm. And, you know, I want to move on. And, and a part of me wants to say she did it because it was the good Christian thing to do. But I also think that a lot of times people do that because they, they're afraid. Mm -hmm. of they don't want to believe. And they, they don't want to believe. They're, they either, they find a way in their head to make it make sense. Like mm -hmm. maybe the fault was, maybe it was my fault. Maybe I wasn't giving enough attention. Or maybe, maybe I, I need to forgive them because I'm afraid that if I stand up for myself, this might be the only person that, you know, I, I was yeah. meant to be with. And then, so maybe there's not someone else out there for me. So people in a way have a little bit lower self-esteem and they think I have to, I have to, at all costs, I have to make this work because they're afraid of being alone. And um, he said something to the effect of not a quote, because this was, you know, from a second party but they basically said why do you want to be with me when i don't want to be with you mm -hmm. and i thought that was one of the most heartless things that i could imagine yeah. um but that is it's a sad reality but some people uh you know i i can't blame her even though they'd been together for 15 years in the film i believe right. he said they've been together for about 15 years right. uh their son definitely sounded like a teenager mm -hmm. um which was, Tom was like, Holland, by the way <laughs> oh who um, the son was Tom Holland. Spider-Man. Really? I did Okay. Uh -huh. I okay. Spider-Man. He's using the baby <laughs> face and baby voice to his advantage here. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Of course, this was, uh, he probably would have been a teenager back then. Was it, it says 2013? Oh, yeah. I forget that this was, um, that that was almost, uh, almost 10 years ago now. I, Cute. That, I, I'm old. <laughs> Man, well, I'm I'm probably decidedly older than all of you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. 
It's all right, though. People people don't know, so that's okay. <laughs> yeah, they just know our voices. Yes. And everybody says Alex has an old voice. I'm pretty sure that Alex trained himself to have have that voice. <laughs> he's it's his professional he's funny, voice. But somehow he has the voice of like a 50-year-old smoker. <laughs> So it's a. I wanted to say not Walter Cronkite, but a little bit of maybe Tom Brokaw. <laughs> a little oh, bit. Oh. A little bit Tom Brokaw. I'll take that as a compliment. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I remember someone. Uh, I used to work at a call center a long time ago, and this person said, "You know, you have a voice for radio." I'm like, "Thank you for not saying face." I <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, but no, I from that call center, I feel like I have a completely different customer service voice. <laughs> Thanks yeah. for calling AAA. My name is Alex. Are you calling today to file a new claim or following up on an existing claim? <laughs> Sorry to bother you. It's like a movie about uh, people having customer service voices. Mm-hmm. It, that's a good movie if you haven't seen it. I will have to check that out. I've heard of it, uh, and I knew I wanted to watch it, but... Uh, I have a more uh, connected to this movie recommendation now. This, the director and writer of this movie, Stephen Knight, uh -huh. also wrote Eastern Promises, which is, like, one of the best, like... Uh, it's directed by David Cronenberg, but it's written by this director, oh. Stephen Knight. It has a scene where Viggo Mortensen wrestles... Uh, in prison completely naked oh and he has a thick russian accent the whole movie so huh. tell me you don't want to watch that movie right now oh oh man <laughs> i mean captain fantastic uh, vigo mortensen was naked in one scene but he did not have the russian accent uh but as <laughs> airborne <laughs> he is in a prison and he is in the shower and completely naked ah. and wrestles with another completely naked man oh so borat but showers <laughs> But like violent, angry wrestling. Right. <laughs> Probably some shivs involved. Yeah. But uh, anyway, speaking of customer service voices, did anyone else pick up on um, his voice changed a little bit when he was talking to different people, like his boss? Uh, it was still calm, but um, when he was talking to his wife or his boss or the baby mama? And the way that he talks to the people under him is like so much more aggressive mm -hmm. than he would talk to these other people. Cause yeah. he like tells that one, one guy, if you mess this up, I'll uh, put right. through a wood chipper or whatever he says, like he wouldn't have threatened his boss like that. And his mm -hmm. boss is getting way meaner to him. But this one guy messes something up and he's like, I will murder you. Uh -huh. Yeah. Yeah. And the guy's like, you can't threaten me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, that that is that is a good call there. I mean, I, I wanted to say that maybe, like uh, I mentioned, the the British stiff upper lip in the way in which he was handling it. They even though it's a lot different now, as far as what I'm told, there is still uh, a lot of vestiges of the British class system uh, that are still around, and uh, he appears to me to be what British middle class. Now, like I said, I'm not an expert, but I, I've I am a slight Anglophile, just a little bit. Not, not I know Alex is too. I don't know if he'll admit, <laughs> but uh, but um, the from what I'm told is like the middle class over there. Middle class means something different than here. 
here middle class is just like it just it's a you know you're not it's not the class that you belong to it just happens to be whatever your socioeconomic strata is at the time you could be poor then you could make middle class you become rich you could slide back down there it's like um your trade what you do is a lot more defined for you and your standing in society so his giving definite deference to his to his boss even after he was fired and he did say at the end he's like you know um he says fuck chicago yeah uh, but he was still he was still nice to his boss the mm-hmm. whole time he still gave him deference and then like you said the way he spoke to the people who were underneath him is he was very matter of fact but then he was started to get you know pushy and it's like right. you're, you're gonna do what i say because he he was above them at least in his in his mind and then when he was talking to the guy the uh, indian restaurant guy yeah. Like he was almost uh, like on his knees pleading to that guy. Like, so I saw... yeah. Hmm. Sorry, Trevor, you were saying something? Uh, sorry, no, I just agreeing with you. <laughs> right. <laughs> I also thought there was just a bunch of like little language things that were just very interesting. Like, uh, at one point he said, uh, if you use C5 concrete, it won't even hold a kitten's fart or something. <laughs> something like that. He says kitten's fart, which stood out to me. Uh, yeah. He also refers to monkey Jesus at one point. <laughs> I heard that in there. I, I feel like that's a little bit of a culture shock almost but between <laughs> phrases that we use here in the U.S. versus English I phrases. I love English phrases. <laughs> I tell you what, I have a friend who is an actor in England. I wish I, besides, of course, the time difference, it's probably close to one in the morning there, but um, it would have been fun to get her on this episode. (laughs) There was also two different characters that called him a clown. His boss, when Mm -hmm. he like tells him that he's not going to be there, he's like, are you wearing a red nose? Yeah. Like keeps like specifically calling him a clown, which I thought was interesting. Using that red nose line from now on. Yeah. Well, it's funny, like in Spanish, that you know, like even in, uh, they used to say this. We don't really hear this anymore. It's mm-hmm. an old phrase, and I always think of it from the from the movie Clue. Uh, mm-hmm. But they, if you ask somebody if they're joking, and they're like, "I'm not joking," they say, "Well, I ain't, uh, I ain't whistling Dixie." You know? <laughs> uh, and I think of that because the Clue movie. But um, but they say in Spanish, you know, it's one of my favorite things to say is like. Are you joking? Estás bromeando? And they say, no estoy vestido de mariachi. I'm not dressed like a mariachi. <laughs> uh, so that's like everyone has their own little cultural way of saying that they're not joking. Yeah. Oh, man. And now we see how people in Spain think of mariachi bands. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> We're trying to figure out a way to uh, segue into this, but uh, speaking of people that look like a clown, uh, Google, uh, uh, what's the actor from this movie's name? I just forgot. Tom Hardy. Google Tom Hardy. <laughs> Tom, Google Hardy. Tom Hardy. My face. Oh man! Real quick. This is uh, traumatizing stuff. I just lost my article. One second. <laughs> 
Well, it's uh, screenshot. Oh, but if you get a chance, uh, look up Tom Hardy MySpace because it's like the worst MySpace pictures. He's not wearing a shirt in any of them. He like is playing with like guns. Uh, he's got grills on. He has a mustache and he's wearing uh, only underwear in one of them. He looks like, like some kid I went to high school with. And that's like the most bizarre part of it is you don't see those pictures and you're like, that guy's going to grow up to be uh, one of the biggest actors. Uh, you see Tom Hardy on MySpace is just every other person on MySpace. Is that a diaper? Probably. I would not be surprised. <laughs> and there's a couple good duck faces. He does the duck face. Oh, man. Oh, man. You know, sometimes I hear people talk about, I miss MySpace. I miss simpler times. I'm like, I, I look at these photos and I'm like, you miss that? <laughs> I'm sure Tom Hardy doesn't miss MySpace. Oh, yeah. I'm sure he wishes that it was gone. <laughs> I'm sure Tom Hardy's family does not miss MySpace. <laughs> you know, I, I have to admit that although fully aware of it at the time, I never had a MySpace. Yeah. Never had one. I think I got my MySpace the year before it got zucked. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I had I had like a year or two of MySpace before Facebook took over. Mm -hmm. And it was fun. It was just a... I don't know. It's There's one of those of things... Yes. I was kind of disappointed, though. I was hoping that MySpace Tom Hardy would have just been Tom that uh, is everyone's friend. <laughs> That's, I mean, maybe he's a good enough actor. It could have been him. He could have been every Tom. <laughs> oh, man. All right. For all the Gen Z kids listening here, uh, go ask your parents. <laughs> yeah, they had just been pretty small when MySpace was around. <laughs> it's like Facebook, but like worse. Angstier. Well, what's funny is like, even when I was a teacher, they, um, even though some of them had like Facebooks and stuff, mm. a lot of the Gen Z kids were like, Facebook is for old people. I'm like, really? <laughs> they got Twitter now. Yeah. Yeah. I remember Facebook was only young people for like a year or two. And then all of a sudden everybody's parents got on there and it was like the most. Minion like, memes. Shift. Yeah. It, it was just like, first it was just like a bunch of kids hanging out. And then all of a sudden the parents show up. And they're just like, yeah, making dumb memes and like posting around uh, like weird like chain mail. Mm -hmm. Like, what? And happened? then those kids grew up and became their parents. And <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh huh. No, it's funny. It's all right. My dad won't see that. Well, I'm sure he probably won't listen to this podcast. But like, yeah, my dad discovered. I mean, he he basically just started discovering Facebook like a year ago. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so he's going through that. Um, enthralled face that uh, everyone had i mean for all those of us who would had like facebook since forever yeah. we're like yeah we're all kind of just past it now uh -huh. it's just you know something that you know we just own but we're not really into it that much so he just thinks everything is amazing and he's like you know writing books on them like dad uh, <laughs> when you post you're not supposed to write a book we are <laughs> Yes. Yeah. Just, just something small because no one, if someone sees you writing a book, they're not going to read it. Mm -hmm. This is not going to happen. 
and um and then posting stuff onto my page and just like random stuff and so i'm like yeah this is uh not not good not good it's like those commercials you know people turning into their parents like am i gonna turn into my dad oh my god my parents love those commercials (laughs) my dad does too my mom just uses facebook to watch pimple popping videos which is oh (laughs) why is that a niche why that's worse than those earwax videos oh she watches those too oh of course (laughs) oh man yeah where where there's one there's oh my god but yeah any final thoughts on the movie by the way before um, we go into free mode or i'll say one quick thing i thought uh like towards the end when he's talking to his son and uh his son says will you come home and he shakes his head no and then says where else would i go so he's like saying yeah i'll be there but like shaking his head no and i feel like that's such like a like clever little acting thing yeah good acting choice yeah, it's I totally out. forgot about that part. I <laughs> I remembered it kind of. I thought, and it, and it was interesting. You mentioned that was Tom Holland, um, but uh, when he he obviously playing the kid, you know, it, it's fully dawned on him now that there's something severely wrong, mm-hmm. and you know, his dad he kept trying to get him to tell him what it was, and his. And uh, Ivan would not tell him, you know, what was wrong. He's like, I'll, I'll explain it. Not while I'm driving. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you later. You know, it's uh, mm-hmm. it is it's something bad. But then he like calls back later, and he's trying to tell him about the game, and the soccer game. And he was um, still just like, you know, trying to explain about something cool. But you you hear the sadness and the anxiousness in his voice because he's still trying to make it like it's a like we still have normalcy, right? We still have normalcy. He's talking about that player. He's like, yeah, you know, the guy that you say is always a donkey, which I guess means he's a bad player. Yeah. Right. And uh, he's like, yeah, but he was, you know, he was brilliant tonight. He was brilliant. He's like, well, it's a miracle. It's a miracle. You know, it's, it's almost like they're trying to convince themselves that there's still normalcy here, that mm-hmm. there's still, you know, it's, it's not all is lost, but yet both of them are, you know, the sensing the pain uh, even though they're just they're just talking about normal things that they would normally talk about, you know, say like, yeah, we, you can come over and you can watch it and you know drink your beer and we'll have the sausages and we'll just you know we'll pretend like we watched it for the first time. It's almost like we'll pretend like nothing's wrong, right? You know, I, I thought that was you know sad. I mean, but it was it was a very real. I, I felt like it was as far as acting goes the emotion that was transferred like you you'd mentioned tom hardy's the only one that's on screen but mm-hmm. uh the the voice acting there like people had to bring the real emotion uh to those parts and uh you can feel you can feel the real emotion um through what those actors are able to portray i really can was another good example of like the double speak in the movie because he talks about he, he like explains the soccer goal and he says the guy just keeps running he keeps running and the defenders keep trying to hit him and like he, he just keeps running and he uh just keeps going for that shot and it, i felt like it was actually talking about how like everything bad keeps happening to tom hardy uh at that point in the movie like mm-hmm. like everything in his life is falling apart around him but he's just continuing to run through it it seemed like there was a lot of like more of that like double speak like metaphor kind of in that conversation i see that i think, writing. I think that was really great um 
honestly, yeah, it took me until you mentioned that to really pick up on the, he just kept running through the, and then still made the goal. Obviously, um, Tom Hardy's character, he didn't make his goal of making everything better, but uh, he just kept running even though all the odds were against him, even though he was the donkey there. I mean, he made an ass yeah. of himself. And <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it also reminded me, have either of you read the play The Wild Duck? I know. Okay, so it's by Henrik Ibsen. Uh, basically, brief synopsis of the plot. Um, there's a family, they're doing very well. They take in a boarder who is the son of this really rich guy. Well, this boarder is also a huge idealist. And he thinks that he can fix their marriage by forcing them to tell the truth to each other. Like he first forces the husband to tell his wife why his father was in prison. And then he like tells the wife to, well, no, he doesn't tell the wife. He tells the husband about his, about the guy's wife cheating on him and that his daughter isn't his. Well, instead of fixing the family, he destroys it. Mm. And he thinks he's doing the right thing. And I think a lot of those themes from the wild duck are also in, in this um, with the yeah. idea of cheating, with the idea of like this son who isn't really his wife's, well, isn't his wife's at all, but uh, I don't know. That's um, also one of my favorite plays by one of my favorite playwrights. So, <laughs> well, it's, it's almost like uh, Death of a Salesman in a way. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was thinking about that Arthur. I think it was Arthur Miller. Yeah, Arthur that. Miller. Um, but it's you. You have all of these grand plans and these ideas that you you just believe that they're, you're visualized that they're going. You know that they're going to work. And uh, if you think about it, what would have been the smart? Obviously, if if he was playing it smart, we wouldn't have ourselves our our movie here. Right. But uh, what would have been the best way to handle it? Like, eventually, you're going to have to tell the truth to somebody. First of all, boss doesn't need to know anything. Right. That's none of his business. But eventually, you're going to have to, if you want to save your marriage and you want things to be right, mm -hmm. you need to tell your wife what would happen. But that was under the absolute worst circumstances. Over the phone. Do it. Right. Over the phone, I'm driving to be there for some woman that you don't even know about that even mm -hmm. exists that I barely even care exists myself, but I, I feel like it's the right thing for me to do. Um, it was uh, totally wrong. He should have just been like, look, I won't be there tonight. I'm so sorry. Uh, I'll explain everything when I get home. And it, 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 it would have been enough, you know, for him to say, I'm sorry, we just can't talk right now. It's dangerous from driving. Um, I'll, I'll be back and I'll tell you everything. And if he'd done it in person and expressed himself with emotion, I think he could have saved his marriage. Mm -hmm. possibly i mean we don't know I mean, it's fictitious but you know he right. handled it in all the wrong way but he thought he was going to be rewarded for his uh responsibility he was being responsible like i said is is he's berating his his dead father over his lack of responsibility mm -hmm. and how he's superior to his father even though he made the exact same mistake that his father did uh he's superior to his father because he has superior responsibility he's a, a superior man but then he realizes that you know um is it, you know as he even said the apple doesn't fall far from the tree that is true that um, is interesting that and i think um 
and this may be just me, I don't think that he was thinking he was going to get rewarded. I think he was saying, you know what, I'm going to take my lumps, but this is going to be revenge on my dead father. Like, look at me, I'm getting all, I'm all this stuff taken away from me, but you're going to have to watch from beyond the grave as I do better than you, as I save our family name. <laughs> right. Like not necessarily that he's going to be rewarded, but that he's going to be able to fix it. Mm-hmm. He's going to be able to handle it. You know, he's going to smooth it over and every, everything's going to end up being okay or patched together because right. he made it happen. Right. But yeah. I, place. Did you catch the one uh, direct play reference in the, in the movie? Um, ooh, uh, oh, I'm trying to remember about what point did it happen? Um, it pretty early on. And it was uh, Olivia Coleman, the uh, baby mama mentioned it. Um, oh, King she says, Lear. She says that um, <laughs> she's waiting for God, waiting for Godot. She like. Oh. Okay. I, I was trying to figure out the whole movie, the connection ah. for Godot. I thought that was interesting. That yeah, it's almost like okay, they're all waiting for things that they know will never come, and <laughs> or they don't know will never come. I should say. <laughs> Except for that baby's coming one way or another. Right. The baby's coming and the concrete is going to be poured. <laughs> yeah. Best concrete movie ever made. Oh, I man. How much about concrete now? I don't know any more about concrete except uh, you can't use C5 and C6. <laughs> I don't know what Don't I let heard. it get on your skin. <laughs> I'll say that much. You, I learned that in Mexico when I was Ooh. working with concrete. And, um, you know, another missions trip. But it's like you, uh, apparently they're like, hey, you got that concrete on you because you're mm. mixing it and it got on your skin. Like you have to get it off right away because that thing will actually burn you. Mm. It'll give you a third degree burn mm. on your on your skin if you don't wash it off. Because it, when it hardens, it just like, I don't even know how it works, but it, when it hardens, it destroys you. So, yep, don't get it on I your skin. That beforehand. Yeah. It's <laughs> like... Uh, it's like uh, Cobra Kai. If you see that, they get in the in the training. The kids get in the uh, the concrete mixer, and it's like, yeah, you gotta get that stuff off right away, or you're gonna die. Right. I mean, I've seen enough Laurel and Hardy sketches where they put their hands in cement or feet, and yeah. Uh, <laughs> but then again, it's like if you look at Laurel and Hardy to be the, um, I don't know, description a realistic movie. Um, no one's neck stretches that far upwards, so. <laughs> I love Laura and Hardy. Mm. Oh, man. That, yes. I, TCM, I grew up on Laurel and Hardy, and I think I still have one DVR save from when TCM did the marathon of them. <laughs> you can watch basically all their stuff there on, uh, on YouTube. I watched it a while back ago. But I love how in fear of their wives they are. <laughs> the ones where they're always trying to pull one over on their wives and, and they're they're not smart enough. Um, but those are good. I love, I've seen every Marx Brother movie um, mm-hmm. and pretty much all of the Three Stooges ones too. But yeah. There you go. Yeah. Now I'm thinking of this movie, how Oliver Hardy would have played Locke. <laughs> he'd be blaming other people (laughs) he'd be like that is another fine mess he got me into 
He would blame other people for his well, problems. Stan would be Donald for sure. <laughs> oh yeah. And you had the cider. Oh, no, I've only had a little bit of fizzy pop. <laughs> yes, I've had the cider. <laughs> a very different movie. Oh man. He'd start crying and be like, I, I poured this, I poured the concrete. I poured it on the, you know, it's like, uh, like talking about their sarsaparilla. He drank the whole sarsaparilla instead of his half. And he's like, he starts crying. He's like, why did you drink the whole half? You drank the whole thing. We're supposed to share it. He's like, but my half was on the bottom. I love that sketch. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. You're right. He would, he totally would have been Donald. <laughs> <laughs> having to talk him through everything and james yeah. finlayson would have been the boss yeah i can't come in tomorrow don't <laughs> 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 all right well as we take this back to the 1920s or 30s uh, to our listeners thank you so much thank you gabe and trevor for being on this podcast and oh man what a great time thank you thanks, thanks for having us absolutely Thank you so much for joining us on this week's episode of The Greatest Unknowns. If you like what you heard tonight, subscribe to The Greatest Unknowns on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, and make sure to like us on Facebook. We'll be back in two weeks with a different movie and different guests, so goodbye until then. We'll see you next time, and remember, if you see a movie that you think should be featured on an episode of The Greatest Unknowns, make sure you message it to us on Facebook, and we'll try to fit it into the schedule. So long, everybody. Have a great night.